You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Akiva Cohen. Akiva is a commercial litigation lawyer who is based in New York, and um, he is well-known on Twitter for his uh, threads um, under the hashtag litigation disaster tourists. Uh, I'll put a link to his Twitter account and also those that hashtag um, below. Welcome, Akiva. Thanks, Iona. Thank you for having me. This is uh, this is an interesting one, so it should be a fun discussion. So I invited Akiva on to um, comment on a litigation lawsuit, a libel lawsuit um, for $100 billion. Um, um, sorry, $100 million, not billion. It's not quite that ambitious. For $100 million, which the 19-year-old chess grandmaster Hans Niemann is bringing against um, world chess champion Magnus Carlsen, the company chess.com, which is an online, a, a place where you can play uh, chess games online, including uh, tournaments for money, most notably a tournament called uh, Title Tuesday. And uh, um, so he is suing chess.com and its owner, Danny Wrench, um, together with a, a chess grandmaster, Hikaru Nakamura, who has a well-known um, Twitch channel with, I think, a couple of million um, viewers, who is a chess commentator, over accusations of cheating. And uh, um, when I was looking on Twitter for legal commentary on this, Akiva, I found that Akiva had a thread under his hashtag litigation disaster tourism. And um, it was, I think, the most detailed and most informative of the threads that I have read. So that's why I invited him on. Um, and I gather, Akiva, you've been a guest on a couple of other podcasts to talk about this too. Uh, just the one, and hopefully uh, we've fixed the technical glitches so that it won't be an issue on this time. I, I was on C squared, and it turned out that my computer was running only on Wi-Fi, and the Ethernet connection had been disabled. So I think I I ended up dropping like every other word of my video. Yeah, so I feel I feel kind of terrible about that one, but uh, we've gotten that corrected now. Um, apologies to listeners that occasionally um, I'm having to sit downstairs rather than in my usual podcasting space. Uh, because we have uh, plumbers in today, and occasionally you might be able to hear the landline phone. So um, we'll hopefully cut most of those out. But if you do hear that, please excuse us. Um, I'm just interrupting this briefly to say that when I made the initial introduction, 
um, to this podcast. I got a few of the technical details wrong, um, a few of the technical chess details. Um, I've only been playing chess for a year. So I decided to ask uh, my friend Bill Forster, who is a chess player and programmer and the inventor of a chess app website uh, called the Tarash Chess GUI, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, um, just to make a few comments before we begin. Over to you, Bill. The drama that we're going to be talking about today uh, kicked off at the Sinkerfeld Cup in St. Louis, Missouri, a very prestigious, over-the-board, slow time control, one game per day chess tournament. Uh, this tournament is um, amongst the two or three best uh, or most important uh, annual chess tournaments, I would say, and um, only the best players in the world get to play. However, this year, Hans Niemann, a rapidly rising young chess pro- professional, scored a um, possibly unlikely invitation to play in the tournament due to a late um, withdrawal. And the sensational events continued when Hans defeated world champion Magnus Carlsen in the third round. Uh, Magnus, of course, is for 10 years has been the undisputed number one in, in chess. He has strong claims to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And uh, he loses very rarely in these kind of events where he gets to... Um, spend all day working on playing the game and um, uh, he, he he loses perhaps once or twice a year in such circumstances and then only to the very best players in the world typically so him losing to a newcomer immediately was sensational but the sensation uh, rose to the next level when he subsequently uh, withdrew from the tournament this is basically unprecedented. Why would, why would a player like Magnus withdraw from a classical chess tournament? It never happens except due to ill health. Uh, Magnus poured um, fuel on the flames by issuing a rather indirect sort of tweet that maybe hinted that there was some underlying suspicious behaviour. And um, within over the... Over the over the forthcoming days, um, there was a huge amount of speculation. It emerged that Hans had um, been known to have cheated in online chess as a younger man. He's all he's only nineteen now, but um, he's been something of a prodigy. It's quite normal in chess these days for players to start very young, and. Um, when he was 12 and 16, apparently, Hans had been exposed internally as a cheater in the chess.com online chess platform. Uh, this is not uh, that unusual, especially for a young person, the temptation to cheat in an online competition when uh, it's almost trivially easy is high and you need a certain sort of um, well-developed moral compass to realise that it's just the wrong thing to do. But uh, 
people made um, people decided that it was perhaps not the end of the world for a young player to have done that. Um, but Keating in a over the board tournament with is a much more serious allegation, and it's also much more difficult. How how would you cheat? Uh, there were sort of uh, a million theories that emerged quickly. Um, it is possible; it has happened in 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 the past that people have been exposed as cheating, even in important tournaments, um, by using surreptitious means. Uh, there were there was even a joke um, theory put forward that maybe um, Hans had some anal beads that were somehow vibrating and giving him information during the game. I don't think that was ever anything more than a joke, but uh, the nature of life these days meant it spread around the internet and became a serious theory, and I believe someone even tried to um, rig up a prototype to see if it was possible. Anyway... um, Amongst all of this um, speculation, the chess world moved on and almost bizarrely, um, a month later, Magnus was um, drawn to play Hans again, this time in a much less serious uh, competition, an online rapid competition. Um, And really, we thought, Drama was already up to 10, but Magnus turned it up to 11 by sensationally resigning his game against Hans after just one move, in effect throwing the game away, saying, look, I'm just not going to play you. Uh, Magnus did not withdraw from the tournament this time. In fact, Magnus went on to win the tournament. Uh, But um, now it was really necessary for Magnus to... Uh, explain himself and he did um, he issued a proper statement saying that he had considered withdrawing from the Sinkfield Cup when um, Hans was unexpectedly uh, elevated to play Um, so apparently there were quite strong rumours about Hans in the in the elite chess playing community People knew about these um, earlier incidents on the chess.com online platform. And Magnus was suspicious of Hans. He thought that his behaviour during the, the critical game, the Sinkfield Cup game that he lost, was unusual. And basically Magnus was casting all kinds of shade on uh, Hans this time um, more formally and not just by way of a uh, odd little tweet. Um, and sometime after that, the uh, Hans um, decided to uh, seek legal redress, which is what the bulk of this podcast is going to be all about. So uh, in terms of what first got caught my attention with this, um, so I actually had like four or five people tweet the complaint at me and ask me to do a breakdown. So, um, you know, when I get that many requests on a case in a short period of time and I have time in my day on a particular day, odds are pretty good that I'm going to take a look at it. And in this case I, I did. And, you know, um, 
the litigation disaster tourists uh, hashtag came up because, you know, it, it started out of a really crazy defamation case, uh, the, the Vic Mignogna case uh, in Texas, where he sued some of the people accusing him of various forms of sexual harassment. Um, and then it developed into uh, looking at some of the crazy election litigation and particularly some of the Kraken suits uh, that Sidney Powell was trying to file and Rudy Giuliani was trying to file. And it, it, it was just bad. But um, wild defamation suits are definitely uh, sort of prime reading for this type of thing because defamation suits, particularly in U.S. law, are really, really, really hard um, and very hard to do well. And so a couple of people tweet that at me. I took a look and it was like, okay, yes, this is this is worth reading. So let's maybe go through the plaintiffs one by one and talk about um, the kind of case that Hans is trying to make and how likely the success, how likely you think it is that he will be successful. I think one thing that we should clarify at the beginning, because several people have asked me about this on Twitter, is um, a few people have suggested that um, it's he can't bring a case against Hans, uh, against Magnus because Magnus is a Norwegian citizen. But I think that's not relevant because the events um that took place uh mag the events that um in which magnus was involved the matches in which magnus was involved and magnus's subsequent tweets and statement um took place when magnus was in missouri so i think that uh, that means he's still liable even though he's not a us citizen yes um, that's 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 right and and you know some of them were in missouri some of them may not have been i know the the second match that uh hans is complaining about was an online match uh so there's no way um no the match where he resigned no that was in in person the match both match the match where he resigned i thought that that cup was was i thought that that uh, tournament was an online. Oh um, no, I don't think so. Um, okay, I'll, I'll just I'll double check that and um, yeah. But, but in terms of whether or not he's subject to suit in the U.S., yeah, no, it doesn't really matter where you are from. Um, if you so, for example, imagine you know an American tourist in France or in Norway gets into a car accident. And then they fly back to to the U.S. Um, the person who is injured in that car accident in Norway doesn't have to come to the U.S. to sue them. They could sue them in Norway. Same thing, you know, if if Carlson had gotten into a car accident in Missouri, he was in Missouri. He was doing something in Missouri. Therefore, he's subject to suit in Missouri. There are other ways that you can be subject to suit in various locations. So for example, you know, Hans, it lives in Connecticut. He's based in Connecticut. If you do a wrongful act that is, you know, likely to have an impact in Connecticut and harm somebody in Connecticut, you can be sued in Connecticut. Um, and then 
the question then becomes, okay, but how do I serve process? Meaning, okay, I filed a lawsuit. How does the court gain power over you if you're not in Connecticut, if you're not in Missouri, uh, you're in Norway? How does, how does that happen? And the answer is countries want uh, their citizens to be able to sue foreign people uh, in their home state, right? So Norway wants Norwegians to be able to sue in Norway, uh, even if the person who injured them in Norway is a foreigner, right? Is not a Norwegian. And so Norway has entered into a treaty uh, called the Hague Convention on the International Service of Process that there are, you know, well over 100 countries that are a party to. And what these countries have agreed is that uh, where there is a lawsuit in one country targeting a foreign national, there is an agreed process under international law by which a plaintiff can serve process on a defendant, meaning get the defendant a copy of the complaint or petition or whatever document initiated the lawsuit in such a way that the defendant is legally obligated to show up and defend. Now, that doesn't mean they have to show up and have a whole litigation, right? Like if I am suing, uh, you know, some random person from Norway who's never done anything in New York, never did anything to me, and I sue them in New York, they can show up and say, what are you talking about? There's no reason for me to be in New York. Nobody said I did anything in New York. Nobody said I did anything that would hurt somebody in New York. So you could move to dismiss. And we'll talk about defendant by defendant. I think a lot of these defendants are going to move to dismiss on the basis that they've got nothing to do with Missouri. You can't sue them. But at the very least, by getting Magnus this, the copy of the complaint, along as provided for under the treaty, Magnus will have to show up in court. And so will play Magnus, and so will Chess.com, and so will Danny Wrench, and so will Hikaru the question is going to be, okay, what do they do once they get there? Mm, yeah. I think one other thing that I would like to kind of get out of the way right away um, is that um, some people are claiming that Magnus can't be sued because he hasn't outright said um, that um, Hans cheated. Uh, he only indicated it very strongly. Um, so he said something like, um, I've decided to withdraw. I don't feel comfortable, um, playing against hands. Um, I don't feel comfortable in general. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, playing against people who have cheated in the past because I don't know what their actions will be in the future. But it's, it, I think there is no reason. You don't have to be absolutely explicit in your accusation, do you? If the implication is very clear. That's correct. So defamation by implication is a thing, right? Um, if you are, if you are, you know, making a factual claim about somebody and you're doing it by using euphemisms or other words that convey to a reasonable listener the fact that is, you know, that is, you know, defamatory and a lie, um, the fact that you didn't use the specific words isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, or in this case, a get-out-of-lawsuit-free card, right? Um, 
it does create an issue, right? I mean, Carlson can come in and say, oh, no, 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 I didn't say that he cheated in this game, and I didn't mean to imply it, and no reasonable person or a reasonable person would have understood, wouldn't have understood it as an accusation of cheating. Um, and if he wants to make that argument, he can, and he can put, you know, Hans to the burden of showing that, no, um, this was the implication. The implication of what, what Carlson was saying and doing was he beat me by cheating. Um, and once Neiman shows it, Right. Or at least establishes it enough to get to discovery and pass a motion to dismiss. Then the case will proceed just as if Carlson had said those specific words. So, um, you know, saying it without saying it is not a magic cure for being sued with defamation for defamation. Right. Right. Um yeah, that's how I how I understood it as well. Um, just a correction here. You're you're quite right. Um, the second game, the game in which Magnus uh, resigned after only a couple of moves, was the Julius Bear um, tournament, and that was held on Chess Twenty Four. So that was actually held on online. Um, the original game was in in person over the board in St. Louis. Um, so let's let's kind of go through the the lawsuit itself. Um, I guess um, defendant by defendant. Do you want to start with uh, Magnus, or sure. well, start however makes it most sense sure. to you? So I mean, look, the first thing to understand, uh, right, uh, is the concept of personal jurisdiction. So personal jurisdiction means you can't just sue anyone you want to, right? Um, there has to be some connection between the person being sued and the place where you are suing that gives the court authority over that defendant. Okay. And so the very first question, when you see a case like this, which is filed by somebody who lives in Connecticut against defendants who are from Norway and Utah and Florida and who, and the complaint is filed in Missouri. So it's filed in a place that none of the parties are from is, What's this doing in Missouri, right? And for Carlson, that question has an easy answer. This case is in Missouri because a key part of what he did was in Missouri. He was playing in a chess tournament in St. Louis. He did and said things in St. Louis that the complaint is saying was wrongful. That's enough of a connection to Missouri to say, okay, Magnus, you actually can be sued in Missouri. The other defendants, if you look through the complaint, are not alleged to have done anything in Missouri, right? Nobody says Play Magnus was in Missouri or did anything in Missouri. Nobody says Chess.com was in Missouri or did anything in Missouri. Nobody says Danny Wrench or Hikaru Nakamura were in Missouri or did anything in Missouri. So... That's not a basis to sue them in Missouri. And the other way that you could conceivably sue somebody from outside of Missouri in Missouri is if you say, okay, they didn't do something in Missouri, but they did something somewhere else that they should have known was going to have a particular impact in Missouri, right? You know, they defamed a St. Louis business or uh, something that would harm somebody in Missouri. And there's nothing in the complaint that has that connection for any of them, 
So as far as I can tell, every single one of the defendants other than Magnus Carlson can get out of this case if they want to by simply walking up to the court and saying, you know, filing a motion that says, look, whether or not the rest of the allegations and the complaint are true, and obviously we deny them, but you don't have to think about that right now. We don't belong in Missouri. There's no personal jurisdiction over us. A Missouri court has no power over us. You have to dismiss us. Um, And that would leave the case against Carlson and not against anybody else. Um, And because of some of the unique features of defamation law, and particularly defamation law in Connecticut, um, among other states, that actually could have a big impact. Um, What do I mean by that? So first of all, why was the case filed in Missouri if there was no connection to Missouri? And this is something I talked about in the thread. States in the United States have enacted uh, what are known as anti-SLAPP laws, SLAPP, S-L-A-P-P. It's an acronym for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. Um, And a number of states have enacted laws that target those. Because what was happening? What was happening was people would say things critical of corporations or somebody with a lot of money and resources or a celebrity. And that company, that wealthy individual, that celebrity didn't like being criticized, whether it was true or not. And so what they would do is they would sue for defamation. And the thought process for at least some of those plaintiffs was, I'm going to sue you or I'm going to threaten to sue you. And you are going to back down because I'm a big guy. You're a little guy. I have money. You don't. I can spend $100,000, $200,000, $400,000 litigating this case, and I can be fine. That's a rounding error in my budget. You don't have the money to go get a lawyer to defend you, even if what you're saying is entirely protected by the First Amendment, is entirely legal, is entirely true. And therefore, by threatening to sue you or actually suing you, I can get you to shut up, even if I don't have a legal right to force you to be quiet. This became a problem. And in response, states enacted anti-slap laws. And anti-slap laws say that if you are suing somebody over an exercise of a First Amendment right, uh, like the right to free speech or free association, you have to show at an early stage of the case that you have evidence, not just allegations, but evidence supporting every element of your claim, elements being the things you need to prove to make your claim stick, right? So in a defamation case, that means you have to have evidence that they said something about you, that the thing they said was false, that you were harmed by the thing that they said, and that when they said it, this false thing that harmed you, they did so with the requisite level of fault. And that changes depending on who the plaintiff is. Because in the U.S., If you are a private figure plaintiff, if you're somebody not well-known and you're suing somebody else for defamation, generally speaking, all you have to do is show that they said something that was false about you and they were negligent when they did it. They said something that a reasonable person would have known wasn't true. If you are a public figure, 
um, and in some states now for any defamation case, but let's leave it to public figures. If you are a public figure, somebody who's well-known, either in general or in a particular industry, for example, Neiman, who's well-known in the chess world, even if most people in the world don't know her, um, what you have to prove is that the person who said the false thing about you did it knowing that what they were saying was false or while thinking to themselves, you know, I'm not really sure that this is true. I've got some serious doubts, but I'm going to say it anyway. That's a really tough thing, and it's a very tough thing to have evidence for at the outset of your case. And so anti-slap laws make it very, very, very hard to succeed as a plaintiff in a defamation case. And more than that, they say that if you lose on an anti-slap motion, you have to pay the defendant's legal fees. And by doing that, it stops people from filing lawsuits intended to shut up you know, the small fry opposition. So back to why are we in Missouri? Connecticut has a really strong anti-slap law. If Neiman had filed this claim in Connecticut, he would have to show at an early stage of the case, not only that Carlson and Play Magnus and Chess.com and Wrench and Nakamura said things about him that were not true, but also that he has evidence right up front, that they knew it wasn't true when they said it. That's tough. That's pretty much impossible. In Missouri, they pretty much do not have an anti-slap law. They have one, but it only applies to comments that are made, if I remember correctly, in like public petitions. So if you're in a government hearing, you're, you're in front of a town council and you say something to the town council and somebody sues you over it, then the anti-slap law applies. But for something like this dispute between Carlson and Neiman, the anti-slap law doesn't apply. And that's why I think it's pretty clear. That's why Neiman wants to be in Missouri and not in Connecticut. His case gets easier and his risk gets smaller. And what that means, going back to the jurisdictional stuff, in a normal case, if I'm suing five defendants and four of them get dismissed because I have to sue them in a different court, I might go ahead and sue them in that different court, right? In this case, Neiman very much does not want to have to sue these folks in Connecticut. And he can accomplish his goals, which are not just winning the lawsuit. It's sort of a PR move as much as it is illegal, right? He can accomplish his goals just by suing Carlson. So the odds are pretty good, I would say, that if Play Magnus and Chess.com and Wrench and Nakamura move to dismiss on the basis that it's the wrong court and they win, which I think is pretty likely on that, that that will be the end of it for them. They won't get sued anywhere else. Thank you. I think I know we're, we're switching defendants a little bit here, but um, I believe you think that the case against uh, Hikaru is um, pretty weak for other reasons as well. Yeah. That's the jurisdictional issue. Yeah, I mean... Do you, could you go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, look, as far as I can tell, it's it's a pretty epic blunder to sue Nakamura, right? Nakamura is a commentator, and yes, he, he's based on chess.com, and yes, obviously, he's more than just a commentator. But he's a commentator who watched what happened and then gave his opinion about what Carlson was thinking 
what Neiman w- might have done, right? He was drawing conclusions from known facts, and he was commenting on a public controversy. And so there were a couple of options that Neiman had here. The first was he could have pointed to Nakamura and used that as evidence that, yes, what Carlson was saying was defamatory, right? Everybody understood that what Carlson was saying and doing was accusing me of cheating. Look, here's a famous chess commentator who said so and who believed it. And I've been harmed by this. Look, people are believing it. Instead, he chose to argue that there was a conspiracy, that Nakamura not only uh, said these things about him, but he did that not because he was accurately reporting on what was going on or drawing conclusions, but because he got into a room with Carlson and Chess.com and they sat down and they said, ooh, we had better lie about Hans Niemann. Let's join together to do so. That is a really bad tactical idea, okay? Because there's no need for it, and it's really, really hard to support. Um, He doesn't have any evidence for it other than the fact that Nakamura said these things, which, sorry, that's not evidence of a conspiracy. Um, It wasn't necessary, right? It didn't have to be a conspiracy. Opinion is protected, right? You can't sue somebody for a defamatory opinion. If I have an opinion about something, unless I imply that the opinion is based on facts that I know that I'm not sharing with you, right? Like if I say, oh, look, I've been in her house a bunch of times. I think she's committing crimes based on what I've seen there. And I don't tell you what that is. That's defamatory, right? Because, or at least it could be defamatory because it's an opinion, but it implies that I know additional facts to support it. I'm not telling you what it is, but a pure opinion or an opinion based on disclosed facts. So, you know, if I said, well, let's, let me finish that thought. An opinion based on disclosed facts, even if it's a stupid opinion, can't be defamatory. So if I said, look, I've been in her house and I've seen the tea that she has, okay? She has pumpkin spice tea. Clearly, she's a criminal, right? Mm-hmm. That, I agree. That, okay. So that, <laughs> that, that could be a stupid opinion or a smart one, but... You can't be a defamatory opinion because I'm telling you the facts on which I'm basing it. And therefore, anybody can make a decision about whether or not the opinion is justified or not. Right, right. And so that makes sense. So Nakamura, when he's commenting on this situation, he's saying, "Okay, you know, based on what I'm seeing, here's what I conclude. Those are all opinions. And their opinions on subjects of public controversy, he's allowed, he's allowed to comment on that and to offer his opinions unless they are deliberately false statements of fact. And so to file a lawsuit against him that depends on the claim that there's some backroom conspiracy, that's going to get dismissed very quickly on the substance as well because there's no evidence of it. And that will hurt Neiman's credibility, both publicly and with the court, right? Like if and when this ever gets to a jury, if I'm representing a defendant, 
one of the things that I say, you know, in my argument is, listen, jury, Neiman wants you to believe that I was lying about him, that I, I really, you know, I, I don't think he cheated. And I said it anyway, as part of a plan to, you know, build up my, my, the value of my brand. Neiman is a conspiracy theorist. Neiman makes things up. He can't believe that people actually think this about him. He accused Hikaru Nakamura of the same thing. He thought we were conspiring together. Do you see Nakamura here at the defense table? You don't, because he had no evidence of that. It made no sense. It never happened. It wasn't true. And the same way his accusations against me are false. And that type of thing can be very damaging if and when Neiman ever gets to a jury, which is at this point a long shot anyway. So all that naming Nakamura does at this point is it takes an already shaky case and makes it rhetorically weaker and easier to defend against. And the key of it is there's no reason for it. Even if you thought this was really a conspiracy, there's nothing that says you have to file that allegation right now. In American litigation, you get discovery. That means you file your lawsuit, you file your claim, and once the defendant answers the claim, you get to take discovery. You get to ask them, turn over documents relating to this, turn over communications. You get to sit them down for a deposition. You get to send subpoenas out to third parties saying, give me all of your communications about this. And if in that discovery, you found evidence that there actually was a conspiracy, you could amend your complaint to add that in later. So you can actually sit and wait and try and figure out if your suspicion has some basis before you crawl out on that limb publicly and make losing it, if it turns out that it has no basis, something that has spillover damage. So tactically, it makes no sense to me that you would uh, make that claim at this stage. And the best explanation I can think of for that is that the client fundamentally insisted and the lawyer wasn't able to convince them that not to do it. Mm. There is quite a lot in the wording of the lawsuit, which really surprised me. And um, within the wording itself, which sounds as though a lot of it sounds as though it was written by Hans. Um, and I was quite startled when I uh, read the lawsuit itself. And of course, I'll link to that um, in the podcast. But let me just find a a, um, a couple of little, um, yes, um, notorious for his inability to cope with defeat, Carlson snapped, enraged that the young Neiman, fully 12 years his junior, dared to disrespect the quotes, king of chess, and fearful that the young prodigy would further blemish his multi-million dollar brand by beating him again, Carlson viciously and maliciously retaliated against Neiman by falsely accusing him, by falsely accusing Neiman without any evidence of somehow cheating during their in-person game. When tournament officials refused to comply with Carlson's corrupt and cowardly demand to baselessly eliminate Neiman from competition, Carlson lashed out again, this time by boycotting the remainder of the Sinkfield Cup in protest. Carlson then confirmed his defamatory accusations um, with a provocative post on Twitter. 
And then talking about the, the game in which Carlson resigned. Carlson, the king of chess, gutlessly forfeited the game after making one move. Um, and I think there's somewhere further on where he talks about, he says that, um, Carlson was upset because of, because Neiman playfully taunted him during the game, which I'm not even sure how that's possible because there's no talking during the game. Um, and I watched, I watched the game and I, I can't see how he was taunting him, um, during the game and in his post-match interview. So it really, it had to me this kind of quite, um, it read like something written by an angry 19 year old man rather than by a team of lawyers. Did you have that impression as well? So look, there, there's a couple of things, right? Um, First of all, they had to have something in there about what Carlson's motivation to lie, right? There had to be some allegation that provides some explanation for um, why they think Carlson would deliberately lie, because they're acknowledging um, that Neiman is going to have to show actual malice. He's going to have to show, and that's the legal term for, for what we talked about in terms of the standard with public figures uh, is they're going to have to show that he either deliberately lied or chose to say it, even though he subjectively didn't really believe it was true or had some real serious doubts. That's a tough thing. And part of that is showing motivation. Also, I understand some of the language. Okay. Um, writing lawsuits does not have to be drafting a complaint in a lawsuit doesn't have to be like this real dry technical thing. And in a lot of contexts, you don't want it to be. Um, we've, for example, represented um, Bungie, the, the company that makes Destiny 2, um, in a number of lawsuits. And a lot of times when you're doing that, you're talking to multiple audiences and it's important to be able to do that. And so you have to use language that conveys what you want to convey, sets out your claim, and does it in a way sometimes that captures the attention and the the understanding that you want to capture, right? And in Neiman's case, he's really writing for two audiences, right? He's trying, number one, it's a lawsuit. So you have to set out elements of a claim and you have to have a good faith basis for everything you're alleging and you have to set out the facts, but also, and just, you know, setting aside whether or not he cheated, what, what happened, all of that. If you just assume that everything he's saying is true, right? That he beat Carlson straight up. Carlson accused him of cheating. There was no basis to it. And he's getting, you know, slammed and hurt as a result. Neiman is in a situation where the public perception of him and how he played is damaging his career tremendously, right? Again, mm, yeah. his allegation. And so aside from just filing a lawsuit against Carlson, he also desperately needs to change the public narrative about himself, about Carlson, and about this interaction. And so it's very clear 
that this is a lawsuit that was drafted with an eye to doing that. And so I wouldn't expect it to be the dry technical language of, say, a business lawsuit or a patent lawsuit where you don't have those issues in play. I do think that this particular complaint went overboard on that um, and probably uh, negatively impacted both the claims and the perception of Neiman in a way. Um, I think there was a little bit too much of the bombast and the arrogance um, and the psychoanalysis for what Neiman wanted to accomplish. I don't think it ended up playing out the way he wanted it to. You're more plugged into the chess world than I am. Like, what's been the reaction to the rhetoric among people who follow this stuff? Um, I think that, I mean, even before this happened, um, Magnus is a pretty popular figure. I mean, not just because of his chess, but he's quite charismatic. People, uh, I mean, obviously opinions do differ, but in general, I would say people don't like Hans. Um, it didn't play well even at the time when he refused to give a post-match interview, for example. Um, and he has a reputation for being, um, moody and, um, and stroppy, um, rightly or wrongly. So I think this really didn't play well. People thought it was kind of ludicrous. Also, some of it is technically a bit uh, questionable. So he talks about, there's a little mistake, technical mistake, which I think is not worth going into in detail about the performance rating versus, um, ELO. Mm -hmm. Um, those are not exactly the same thing and the lawsuit treats them as though they are the same thing. Um, I think that was probably a mistake on the part of the lawyers drafting it. Yes. Because I don't think Hans would make that mistake. Yeah, and sometimes um, the clients don't catch those things. Yeah. And I will tell you, like, we as lawyers rely on clients to catch those things because we are, right, we are experts at law. We're not experts at our client's business until we've dived into it and, and learned the client's business. And sometimes that means correcting those details on the complaint side. Of course. I think also um, that language about, there's language at some point about how um, the defeat dashed Magnus's hopes of reaching 2,900 ELO, um, which would be a historically high rating, highest rating in history for a chess player. Um, and um, I think that that's, that, um, that's, that's just well, I guess um, it didn't dash his hopes of that any more than any of the other recent defeats he's had have dashed his hopes of that. And it also didn't kind of dash his hopes of beating his consecutive, his record of consecutive wins, um, because that defeat didn't end an especially long run of wins on Magnus's part. So neither of those seem to be really very factually justified, I would say. And that's that's a pretty big problem. I mean, I'm not sure how big of a problem it is on the legal end of things when you get into the technicalities of, you know, is it def defamation or not? But those types of factual mistakes can really come back to haunt you in a litigation. Um, mm -hmm. Again, they can impact your credibility. And they're also, you know, they can be an indication that somebody isn't necessarily being as careful 
um, as they ought to be when filing a lawsuit. And that tends to be a bad sign. Um, it doesn't necessarily, neither of those things necessarily impact the defamation claim. Um, because what Magnus's ELO rating is or what his win streak is, don't, they're, those aren't elements of, of the defamation claim. Uh, Neiman doesn't have to prove that one way or the other. Um, although it does go to the supposed motivation for, for the lie. Um, the other thing I was going to say on the language is that to the extent that the complaint is suggesting that uh, Carlson snapped, that he couldn't believe that Neiman had be- had beaten him straight up and therefore, you know, psychologically had to believe that it was cheating, that cuts directly against the claim that Carlson knew that Neiman hadn't cheated. And so the more that uh, that it makes the complaint makes Carlson out into somebody who actually believes that Neiman cheated because he's delusional, he thinks he's the best ever at chess, he can't, nobody could beat him without cheating, et cetera, et cetera, that just undercuts the defamation claim. Mm, yeah. I was going to ask that. Um, I mean, presumably... What he has to prove is that Carlson either knew he hadn't cheated or at least knew that it was highly unlikely and just said it anyway. Um, whereas if Magnus believed that he must have cheated, even if Magnus was delusional in that belief, that is an, a defense. Yes, because specifically because Neiman is in this context a public figure. He was well known in the chess world before this happened. And the defamation, you know, the people to whom his reputation is being attacked are the people who know him in the chess world. Uh, and so Neiman's going to have to prove that uh, Carlson actually was lying or actually seriously doubted whether or not it was true, even if Carlson was delusional. Right. So even if it wasn't true and no reasonable person would have thought it was true, if Carlson actually thought it was true and can show that, that's a complete defense. Mm. Yeah. I think that I wonder whether any of this will hinge on more technical analysis of the game. So I have watched um, some analysis of the game itself, um, the game in which Hans was accused of cheating. Um, and, um, it does seem that the, in the commentator's opinion, Magnus was playing particularly badly, uh, in that game. Um, and the kind of consensus opinion, um, or majority opinion that I've heard from the chess world is that, um, Hans won this less through particularly brilliant play as through kind of, um, um, subpar play, uh, from Magnus, uh, by Magnus's own standards, of course. Um, this is all relative. And Hans does, has had a particularly meteoric rise, um, through the chess world. And maybe we'll get into the chess.com allegations in a moment, but there, that there are some, there are some people who are suspicious that he may have got where he has got currently got by cheating, um, in rated, in rated games before. Um, but also he, um uh he does have a very 
uneven style of play. And immediately after the game with Magnus, he played several other matches in which he played very badly, made a lot of unforced errors, but he was under a great deal of pressure. And then four or five matches later, he played an act, a completely brilliant game, which I will link in the show notes if anybody's a chess chess nerd enough to want to watch that. Um, so um, I think that it's um, it doesn't feel as though that's a game that he could, at least to me, looking at it as somebody who's just a chess aficionado, it doesn't at all look to me like that's a game that he could not have won without cheating. Yeah. So that analysis absolutely will play a part at some point, right? Um, to the extent that this gets past a motion to dismiss, right? So there's going to be a motion to dismiss, not just on jurisdiction grounds. Carlson, my expectation is, will make a motion to dismiss saying, look, you haven't even alleged that I didn't believe it. Um, and therefore the case shouldn't go forward. But if it gets into discovery, then part of proving, part of Neiman proving that he didn't cheat, and as the person claiming that the statement was false, Neiman has the burden of proving that the statement was false. It's not going to be Carlson's burden to show that it was true. Um, Neiman absolutely is going to and should rely on analyses that show, yeah, no, this play is perfectly compatible with not having cheated. And in fact, uh, that Carlson's play was substandard for his standards. And therefore the reason that Neiman won wasn't, you know, necessarily amazing play by Neiman so much as Carlson was terrible. And therefore that couldn't have been a result of cheating either. Um, although from everything I've seen and heard about Neiman, I think Neiman is probably going to have a hard time making an argument that is based on acknowledge, uh, saying that his win wasn't as a result of the fact that Neiman in particular is great. So uh, that's, that's going to be psychologically for him. But yes, if and when this ever gets to discovery and factual argument over whether or not what Carlson said was true, um, those types of analyses are going to be very important. Um, I'd like to just add a little bit about um, uh, over-the-board cheating in chess before we perhaps go on to um, the case against chess.com, which is centered around allegations of online cheating. Um, it it is um, it is of course much more difficult to cheat over the board, but it would be possible, um, and it was certainly would have been possible in the Sinkfield Cup uh, game that they played. Um, as I said, somebody has proved, has offered kind of proof of con uh, concept for the anal beads theory. Uh, but in fact, chess players, it's, it's not like going into an airport. Um, they weren't, they're not thoroughly scanned. They don't have to remove their shoes. It would just about be possible to have a vibrating device somewhere and have a friend using a computer engine to analyze moves and sending you moves by Morse code. That is possible. And if you're a very strong player, which obviously Hans is, you wouldn't need every all of the information being sent to you for every single move. Um, it would be enough to analyze the situation in certain key moves, and you wouldn't need the full thing of kind of um, 
bishop to f7 or something. You could just, it could just say, um, you could just have a code that indicated that it was a bishop move. Because if you were a strong player, that would immediately, looking at the position on the board, you would be, be able to work out which move it was that was the best one from, from a hint. Um, so I think it is just about possible. And there has been an over the board, um, there was once an over the board cheating scandal. Um, and what happened in that case was that, um, the, uh, um, I'm going to get the exact details wrong, but roughly what happened was that the player's trainer or a member of his team was there live at the match and he was going into the toilet whilst he was in the toilet cubicle. He was looking up, analyzing the moves with a computer. And then he was um, catching the player's eye and using a little code that they had worked out beforehand, like scratching his right eyebrow for a knight move, scratching his left eyebrow for a bishop move or whatever, um, was making signals to him. And he was... Um, I can't remember if he was actually caught. I think he was actually caught in the act, the trainer person. And later also they showed that the this guy's moves during the uh, game had a 98% correlation with top engine moves. And I believe that even among grandmasters, the correlation is rarely above 65%. Huh. So, um, uh, so it is possible. I, it does seem quite far-fetched, but I think it's not with... Um, not outside the bonds of bounds of possibility. So now they have introduced some more stringent measures, like for a fifteen-minute gap between um, the move being played and it being um, televised, so that somebody could be watching from another room and then sending Wi-Fi signals. Um, and also, they are scanning the players a bit more, a little bit more thoroughly. But it's still not like an airport scan, so I don't know how thorough. It really actually is. I mean, listen, people put a lot of effort into evading security, right? I mean, it, there's there's these theories of cheating. There's, you know, the Houston Astros players were wearing a wire to get signals theory of cheating. There's, you know, and, and in reality, you know, with the Houston Astros, People were literally banging on trash cans to signal batters uh, what pitch was coming based on, you know, uh, a video camera, you know, focused in on, on the catcher's call. So, you know, there's things will seem outlandish and then also people will do things to get an edge that you would not expect. So I think that analysis of whether there was cheating, if and when it happened, um, would be pretty fascinating. Um, so I just briefly want to talk about the chess.com. So Hans admitted to cheating um, in online games on the platform chess.com, which is one of the two main competing uh, platforms in which people play games online. Mm -hmm. um, and... But he says that he cheated twice, once when he was 12 and once when he was 16. And for context, of course, he is only 19 now. Um, and chess.com produced an 80-page report uh, which in which they claim that he cheated in more than 100 games. Um, and the, the evidence for that is extremely technical and statistical. 
And there is at least one expert, independent expert, who is questioning that. Um, but this is, I guess, part of the collusion um, claim. Um, what do you make briefly of the chest, claim against chess.com? Uh, apart from the jurisdiction issue, imagining that that doesn't, that sticks. So for the most part, the claim against chess.com looks like a loser. Um, at the end of the day, they have an opinion, right? Their opinion is Neiman cheated in games, more games than he acknowledged. And it's based on facts that they disclosed. They conducted their investigation and they told people, here is our opinion and here is why that is our opinion. This goes back to what we talked about before. Facts can be defamatory, right? So something that is either true or false can be defamatory, right? If I say you were in a certain place at a certain time and I saw you commit a crime, that can be a defamatory claim because you could say I was not there, right? Here's evidence that I was, you know, across the world on that day. So couldn't have been me. That is a false statement of fact. On the other hand, an opinion can never be defamatory because it can't be proven true or false. So when chess.com says, look, we've analyzed these facts and our conclusion is that he cheated and they tell you the facts on which they base that conclusion. Unless they can show, unless Neiman can show that chess.com was simply making it all up and they didn't actually hold that opinion, he loses. And the odds of being able to show that they were just making it up and lying is effectively zero. So, mm. yeah, it's not, it's not useful. It, it does not look like a, a winner of a claim. Let's put it that way. Um, may I ask you, I know you have to leave soon, and I wanted to ask something about, rather than the legal aspects, um, the ethics of this case. So um, uh, the one video that I have watched in defense of Hans, which was um, made by a friend of mine, Chris um, Boutet, and I'll link to that in the uh, show notes. Um, but Chris's argument is that um, by making these kind of claims, um, Hans, who, uh, Magnus, who is um, the most influential person in chess, um, and uh, you know the the kind the biggest star in the chess world, is effectively um, just effectively um, potentially destroying the career of um, a, a, a young player, and therefore, even if he believed those claims to be true, it was very unethical of him to to make that kind of statement because the impacts on Hans's life could be enormous. And there's and I I I actually agree with Chris on this. I find it unlikely that Hans cheated on the over the board game. Um, I'm more convinced that he cheated a lot online, and um, probably um, he should have been punished for that. But that's not the case at stake here. So um, I want to just ask your personal mm. feelings about that. Yeah. So the first thing I will say is people need to stop confusing um what is moral and what is legal right mm, yeah uh, yeah and so like i'm i'm a hundred percent competent to talk about you know whether or not something is 
plausibly defamatory, what the legal allegations are, moral discussion of whether or not, you know, Carlson should have done what, what he did has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not Carlson can be, can be held liable. And I think in that sense, your friend and you are both correct that, you know, whether or not it's defamatory is irrelevant. Um, on the morality of it, um, honestly, my gut is it depends. Like, you know, look, to the extent that somebody is actually cheating in an over-the-board chess tournament um, and you believe it, um, that impacts more than just him, right? I, and Look, I'm not a chess guy. I'm talking about, you know, I, but I'm a sports fan in general, right, and a competition fan in general. And cheating in any sort of competitive endeavor impacts a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of cyclists who lost a lot of money uh, because Lance Armstrong was a cheat. Um, there are a lot of people who did not become famous, who, you know, did not become household names, who had accomplishments taken away from them um, in various sports due to cheating from other people. Um, so, you know, there is something to be said about, you know, calling out cheaters and, and not letting them, you know, succeed. On the other hand, there's also something to be said about, okay, are you ruining a teenager's life? Um, and so the specifics of the ethics of this situation, honestly, I don't know enough about it and I haven't thought enough about it to be able to say definitively one way or the other. But it's certainly, yeah. certainly not crazy to think that what Carlson did was unethical, even if it was. Yeah, yeah. I know you need to go soon. So do you have any final thoughts or any? Is there anything that I haven't asked you about or you haven't had a chance to say that you feel is important to emphasize? No, I mean, I think. I think we've covered the ground from a legal perspective. Um, the thing as a lawyer, and, and this sort of cuts into my own business, but it is what it is. People have to stop looking at the court system as, you know, a way of resolving arguments um, in every situation. There are times Absolutely. When litigation makes a lot of sense, there are times when a dispute is the type of thing that should be settled in court. Um, certainly it should never be settled with violence, but you know, there are times, you know, people have a bad opinion of you or, you know, sharing a bad opinion of you. That's not necessarily the type of thing that the court system is meant to solve. Um, and in this situation, I'm not sure that the dispute between Magnus and Hans is one that the court system is meant to solve. And I'm fairly sure that the dispute between Hans and Nakamura is not one that the court is meant to solve. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my takeaway on all of this is, you know, we need to be careful about what types of things we try to impose liability on 
and we need to be fair to each other in what we say and what we what we do. And that's that can be a really tough balance. I don't know where whether whether anybody is coming out of this story um, looking particularly good. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily the most emotionally satisfying outcome for something like this. We like to have heroes and villains, but it's the real world one because in the real world, very few people are just pure villain and very few people are pure hero. And that seems to be the, the situation here. Thank you very much, Akiva. Um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you, Iona. This was, this was a blast. So long. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.